The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. So let me transition now back to true worship and why that, I wanted that to be a point of emphasis. I read, started out with John chapter 4 last week and then Romans chapter 12. Two complementary passages highlighting, talking about what true worship is. The one in John 4, Jesus defined true worship. Very simply, here's true worship. He was talking to a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman who actually believed in part of the Old Testament, believed in God, believed in Yahweh, believed in the Bible, believed in Deuteronomy, believed in uh, the Mosaic Law. Yet there were other things that had been assimilated into her worldview and her theology from being a Samaritan, stuff from the world, polluting pure biblical theology so that her religion was compromised. And Jesus said, that is not acceptable. You must worship God in only one way, and that's the true way, the way that he has revealed to his people that he be worshipped. And it's very specific. And he summarized it all by saying, this is true worship. The Father is seeking true worshipers, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Those are the two beautiful compliments. In spirit and in truth. In spirit, it's from the heart. It is eternal. and Internal. In, in truth, that's objective. There are objective standards that God has revealed by which we approach a holy God. As sinners and as fallen, we don't approach a holy God at our whim any way we want to. At our own devices. Oh, I want to do this. I choose to do this. Oh, I'd like to do that. Let me try that. Oh, the world's doing this. Does this work in the church? No. That's why Jesus said we worship God in the spirit and in truth. In keeping with revealed biblical revelation. Which is what we're going to look at today. So what we're looking at is some scenarios of true history of those who called themselves believers in the true God. And we're going to look at how they approached worship. And at times it was compromised because it wasn't in keeping with Scripture. Sometimes they were doing it by their own agenda. Sometimes they had the wrong heart attitude. So that's not in spirit. Other times they weren't doing it according to God's Word clearly delineated, so that's not doing it according to truth. So it's all compromised and completely unacceptable to God. Some of these scenarios we're going to read, you might follow along and say, wow, why did that happen? He had good intentions. He had good intentions as he was doing false worship. And God didn't accept it despite the good or sincere intentions. So that's what we want to look at. True worship. And we're going to just walk through some uh, Old Testament passages. So the first one is go to Genesis chapter 2. And really this is in keeping with the book of Romans. Actually, 1 Corinthians 10 and also in the book of Romans, Paul says twice to fellow believers, Oh, don't neglect the Old Testament. Don't neglect the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, read it and read it often. Read it frequently. One of the questions we ask people who join our church on a little application survey is have you ever read the entire Old Testament? And I always give attention to that to see, okay, we've got a prospective new member. They're joining our church. They're going to be a part of our local body. So I, I look intently at the answer to that question. Have you, read, have you ever read the entire Old Testament? Many times our prospective new members say, no, they haven't read the Old Testament. Well, then I'm, I feel convicted. Okay, that's, a, that's, uh, that's on me. That's on the elders. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You can't fully understand and appreciate 
everything in the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. As a Christian, as a saint, you have got to have your nose in the Old Testament. You've got to be reading it. You've got to be studying it. I know it can be daunting. It is long. Some of it is very challenging. But you've got to keep at it. So today we're going to look at several truths in the Old Testament. Maybe some of these will be new to you. But no doubt, they'll be a good reminder to all of us whether we've read them before or not. And they, the common theme here is on true worship and what God requires and what he expects from his people. True worship. What to do, what not to do. Let's look at the first one in Genesis chapter 2. True worship. God laid that out with Adam and Eve. Part of that true worship was as God walked in immediate fellowship with them before sin. And we know the story where God gave mandates. You may eat from all of these trees over here. Don't eat from that tree right there. We read from Romans 12 last week that worship, true worship, isn't just about Sunday for 90 minutes. True worship, according to God, was offering your body, your entire life, as a living sacrifice, present tense, continually before God in obedience all the time, conscious of Him. That We are living sacrifices. That's true worship. What is true Christian worship? It is daily. It is continual. Consciously knowing you're before the Creator, before the Savior. The Spirit lives in you. I take the Spirit with me wherever I go. My life is worship, or at least it's supposed to be. That's unique to Christianity. That was true of Adam. Everything in his life was worship to God, especially before sin, because he had such close, intimate fellowship with the Creator, as did Eve. So part of their worship, one of the main things at the heart of their worship was revealed by God who gave them prescriptions and proscriptions of how to worship the true God. You do this when you approach me. You don't do that because I am a holy God. And we know that Adam and Eve, they compromised. Don't eat from that tree. They ate from that tree. That, that was an act of worship. It was an act of false worship because their whole life was supposed to be dedicated to God. And they compromised. They sinned against their creator. They felt guilt. God held them accountable and God cursed them and punished them, and actually the rest of the world and their posterity as a result. So that was actually the first act of false worship, false religion. And they were induced, at least Eve was, by the deception of Satan. And that's still a reality. Do you think Satan's telling any lies to the church today in the last 13 months regarding COVID? Yeah, about worship, about Christianity, about Bible, about the church. Yeah, that's what he does. He's a liar and the father of lies. He never stops. He never relents. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, and he starts in the church. That's what he's been doing. He's a propagator of false religion. Very subtle. Very subtle, very sneaky, very clever, very dangerous. He just has to tweak it a little bit. Just one drop of that cyanide in your coffee. You can't even taste it. It'll kill you. That's what he does. So this was the first compromise regarding worship. Now let's just flip to Genesis chapter 4. I want to read this passage. Uh, so Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel. You know the story. We'll review it. Cain is born, verse 2. Eve gave birth to his brother Abel. So you got Cain and Abel. Abel was a keeper of the flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Verse 3. So it came about in the course of time 
that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Now, there's a, not a lot that is given to us here. Just the highlights. So the Spirit of God prompted Moses to just write down the highlights of what we needed to know. There's a lot of stuff behind the scenes we don't know, we don't hear about, but it is implied clearly based on what the text reveals. And what I mean by that is it says that over the course of time that Cain brought an offering. Why did Cain bring an offering? Because God required him to bring an offering. God commanded him and able to bring an offering. We know that because it's given and implied in the text. The story doesn't make sense without it. So there's an interchange, there's information, there's a revelation, there's special revelation from heaven that has been given to Cain and Abel very clearly about how to worship this holy God. Here's what you do, here's what you do not do. Hebrews 11 helps us out a little bit. The book of Jude helps us out a little bit on this passage. But clearly, God outlines how his creatures are to approach him and worship him. This never changes, by the way. The Mosaic Law does the same thing in greater detail. Jesus did the same thing in the New Testament. Jesus' apostles do the same thing in the epistles and the New Testament that was written for us as Christians. Here's what you do to approach a holy God. Here's what you don't do. It's never changed. God is very specific. You cannot violate his standards and how you worship him. So verse 3, came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And you just read that at face value and a lot of people, oh, that's great. He loves God. He wants to honor God. He's giving sacrifice to God. It cost him something. He's making God somewhat of a priority. Hey, this is great. This is religion. He may have even been sincere. All you got to do is be sincere. Then it doesn't matter how you worship. That's what the world would tell us. It has all the earmarks of it, what the world would find acceptable. Nothing overt or blatant in terms of sin or compromise in verse 3 that we know of, we could see here. Cain brought an offering to, the, to Yahweh. Oh, okay. From the fruit of the ground. All right. Verse 4. Abel, on his part, also brought sacrifice, offering, of the firstlings of his flock, and of their fat portions. So both brothers are worshiping God through a sacrifice that obviously was required from God with stipulations. And then the only comment we get is at the end of verse 4, and it's cryptic. And the Lord or Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, God had no regard. You know what that means? God accepted Abel's sacrifice. God rejected Cain's sacrifice. The text doesn't even tell us why. And then you get commentators speculating all over the place. The text doesn't tell us why. We don't need to know why. There are comments, cryptic ones in the New Testament regarding Cain, Hebrews 11 in particular, and what went wrong here. Uh, Hebrews 11 tells us that the, the main difference between Abel's offering and Cain's offering was that Abel offered his offering in faith. See, that's internal. Heart attitude in keeping with how Jesus defined true worship. True worship, and those who worship the Father shall worship in spirit. That has to do with the internal being, the right attitude. Cain did not have the right attitude. Cain did not come in believing faith. That's Hebrews 11. That's one thing that was wrong with it. 
the wrong heart attitude, and also just not following God's directions. Apparently, when they brought their sacrifices, God made it clear and told them, uh, thank you, Abel, beautiful, I accept it, I reject it. Cain, I do, not, I do not accept this. I reject this. This is illegitimate. We know that because of what it says in verse 4, or verse 5, that God had no regard for Cain's offering, and so immediately it says, so Cain became very angry. Not Cain became angry. Cain became very angry. Angry at who? Angry at God. That's where it started. So that reveals his wrong attitude. He didn't have a wrong attitude as a result of God not accepting it. He had a wrong attitude before he offered his sacrifice. That's the point in Hebrews 11. He did not do it in faith. He was not having a proper attitude. The other epistles make comments about Cain that he was evil and did wicked deeds before this sacrifice. Clearly. So it was an issue of the heart. And God knows the heart. We don't. God knows the heart. That was what was at stake. And he became very angry, very angry, so much so. Angry, ang anger can turn into what? Murder. We know that from Jesus said that in Matthew 5. And that's exactly what happened here. And who did Cain get angry with? God. If you don't know Christ, you, you are angry at God. That's what the Bible says. If you don't know, if you're not born again, you, you hate God. Even though you camouflage it, hide it, whatever. Jesus said it clearly, John 7, the world hates me. The world hates me. And later he told his apostles, the world will hate you. Enemies of God, children of wrath. If you're not a believer, it's innate. They hate God the Creator. And this, this is revealed in Cain's false worship. He didn't follow what God had laid out. He's rebuked by God. His anger is exposed. He gets very angry. When you become very angry, what do you want to do? You want to kill and you, you want to murder. Well, he can't murder God. God's the Creator. So who will I murder? The one God favors, the one God loves. My brother, Abel. And that's exactly what he does. So Cain became very angry. His countenance fell. It just consumed him. That's what that means. He, you could see it on his face. It drove everything about him. It was just all in his thinking 24-7. This anger, this hatred to the core. So God confronts him, verse 6, Then the Lord God said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? God knows everything. He's not asking to solicit information. He's forcing Cain to confront the truth about his sin. These are diagnostic questions. Verse 7, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. You're playing with sin now, Cain. I know you're angry. Anger turns into murder. Watch out. You're playing with fire. And it's desire and it's lust. The lust of sin that's in your heart wants to consume you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother. I don't know what he told him, but he must have told him a lot of the highlights here. Cain told Abel, his brother. Yeah, God confronted me. I was talking to God. I was talking to Yahweh. He knew I was mad at him. He told me to deal with my sin, my anger. Otherwise, it's going to consume me. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him, murdered him. This is true worship gone awry. Point here is, God wants us to obey him explicitly regarding how we are to worship him from the heart and also in the externals. 
They matter. Look at another example. Go to Exodus chapter 4. Now we'll fast forward 3,600 years. Moses wrote Genesis, or at least put all of it together. Moses wrote, also wrote Exodus. How do I know Moses wrote Exodus? Because Exodus says Moses wrote Exodus. Bible study. It's real difficult. But anyway. Exodus chapter 4. So here's Moses. He's 80 years old. He grew up in, the, in Egypt in the palace for 40 years and was weaned by his own mother. She was a Hebrew. She was a Jew, Israelite. No doubt she's telling him, not Sunday school stories, but Saturday school stories about what God has done about who the true God is, about Abraham and his promises. So Moses clearly heard that growing up, became familiar with his older sister Miriam and his older brother Aaron. And no doubt, mom shared with baby Moses as he was growing up in the palace of his heritage, who he truly was, and that the greatest patriarch of the Jews was a man named Abram, who God saved, and he became Abraham. And God, this true God, unlike the gods here in the palace here at uh, the Egyptian palace, see that picture there, Moses, of Ra, the sun god? He's false. He's not real. All those false gods, all those ugly, disgusting serpents and dragon-looking figures, they're from the devil. Don't ever forget that, my son. You can imagine his mom training him the truths of Scripture and then telling him about Abraham. And this, the one true God made a promise with your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy Abraham. And made a covenant with Abraham and a glorious promise in that covenant. Where God promised to make Abraham a great nation. The multitude of people. And that would entail land to live in and would become their own and laws to govern the people. And leaders eventually that he would raise up to lead this people. They would become his people. God himself would be the shepherd of this nation called Israel. You are a part of that, Moses. And in, in time... After God made the initial promise, God told Abraham that, that that covenant or promise needs to be sealed and that the formal sign of that covenant would be circumcision. That every male child that was born needed to be circumcised to be part of the covenant promise. And if you're a male and you're not circumcised, you can't be a part of that covenant. God takes it seriously. As a matter of fact, you would be an outcast if you refused to get circumcised as a male to be a part of the Israelite community. You'd be an outcast. You wouldn't get any of the promises. God takes it seriously. As a matter of fact, it, may, it would make God angry if you disobeyed this most basic command in terms of your fundamental identity as a Jew. Moses should have known this. So look at chapter 4. He just had a vision of the burning bush. And then the true God tells Moses, you need to go and lead my people in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, covenant. Because you're an offspring of Abraham. You need to go lead my people. And then Moses panicked a little bit. Uh, what's your name, God? God said, my name is Yahweh. Oh, okay. I am the true God. That was Exodus chapter 3. So God commissions Moses. And you think, oh, okay, he's ready to go. And then he starts to get a little nervous. In chapter 4, go tell my people. And then Moses starts making excuses. Lord, I, I don't speak very well. And it says God got angry when he said that. God got angry at Moses and rebukes him. Verse 14 of 
Exodus 4, the anger of Yahweh burned against Moses. Why? For making up excuses. I want you to do this and lead my people. I will equip you and gift you to do so. And Moses responds by saying, no, I don't want to do that. How did God respond? Oh, it's okay. I understand. No. Verse 14, the anger of Yahweh burned against Moses. I don't think we get enough of the anger of God as revealed in Scripture. As we tend to do things on a whim the way we like even when it displeases God. Well, Moses, uh, I think he got scared. Um, Okay, Lord. So he had the right attitude. He learned something. And now he's going to be commissioned. Now he has to take care of business. He's been living in Midian to the east of uh, Sinai for all these years. He's got his family there. He's got his father-in-law. He has to go uh, round things out and get prepared and get ready. And he's about to be on a, a venture. He doesn't know it's going to be 40 years of ministry. So he's closing things out. He's got a wife whom he's met, some children, at least two boys. Got to take care of them. So that's what he's about to do. Now look at verse 24. Now it came about, and this is while Moses is wrapping things up in Midian to get ready for this calling that God has called him to do to lead the people out of Egypt. And so they're traveling, they're on the road, and it came about at the lodging place on the way as they're traveling that the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. You ever see that verse in the Bible? Wait a minute, God just called Moses to be a prophet and a deliverer on his behalf. And and Moses is now obediently going to close, close up shop. And get ready. And on the way, on the journey, God confronts him and it says, Yahweh met Moses and sought to put him to death, to kill him. Right there on the spot. Well, his wife is Zipporah. That's her name. She found out about it. How could she not? There's the creator of the universe right there, maybe in a big, huge pillar of fire, ready to consume Moses. Maybe he was already on the deathbed from being sick. We don't know what, how this revealed itself, but the wife knew about it. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. That means she circumcised Moses' son, who was obviously older than eight days now, which means he has violated or neglected what God required his people to do. In Genesis 17, the Abrahamic covenant, All males need to be circumcised at eight days of age, eight days old. And he wasn't. Well, Moses forgot about it. Well, Moses, he didn't have uh, the typical synagogue Jewish teaching because he grew up in a pagan palace or he could make up all kinds of excuses. I forgot about it. God doesn't care. That's not a legitimate excuse. God laid it out. Here's how you worship me. Here's how you don't worship me. He chose to neglect this most basic fundamental mandate of what God requires. And God got angry and God sought to kill Moses. So Zipporah, for whatever, she was probably in a panic, fearing for the life of losing her husband. Wow. She was not a Jew. She didn't grow up with this custom. This was foreign to her. What did she do immediately? She circumcised their son. Zipporah took a flint, made a sharp knife, out of a rock, cut off her son's foreskin right there on the spot, circumcised him. We don't know how old he was, how embarrassing that would be. Cut off the foreskin, and then she threw it at Moses' feet. Threw it down at Moses' feet. We don't know what that means either. It could be a euphemism. 
Some people say she was angry. This is foreign. This is disgusting. This is weird. You didn't tell me about this. The creator's about to kill you. I lose my husband. How come you didn't tell me about this? There's a lot of speculation. The other speculation is she did this not out of uh, anger or spite. She did this uh, touching Moses' feet with his blood, saying, uh, God has spared your life. He's given my husband back. Thank God we don't know what's going on here, but she's definitely confused. She throws the foreskin at Moses' feet, and she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. That's what she had in her hand was a bloody mess. And the son's over there crying, and there's a bloody mess at the feet of Moses, right there in public on the road. Strange story, true story. The reason I brought it up is because it's in this theme that's keeping with true worship. God cares how we worship him. There is a way to approach God, and there's a way not to approach God. When we violate his commands, guess guess what? God can get angry. Does God still get angry? Well, he does. His anger is infinite. It is supernatural. It is perfect. It is deserved. It needs an outlet. What does God do when he's angry still? his, His wrath needs to be appeased. Well, the death of Jesus Christ continues to appease the wrath of the Father. We sin, we blow it, we compromise. God hates sin. That probably disappoints him. And yet Jesus' blood just keeps on appeasing, keeps on appeasing, keeps on appeasing. Satisfying the wrath of God. All of our sins forgiven. Nevertheless, God cares how we worship him. Okay, now go to Exodus 32. More true worship and more false worship. Actually, start in Genesis, or Exodus 19, sorry. Exodus 19, uh, God's people, some would say up to two, 2 million Israelites were led out of Egypt going down through the Red Sea, down to the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula, at the mountain there, Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai it's called. And there on that mountain, uh, the people would congregate, spread out. And then Moses called 70 men to be elders to kind of help administrate the people. His right-hand man was Aaron. Aaron had four sons. Two oldest were Nadab and Abihu, who were going to be ordained as priests shortly here. But God meets his people at Mount Sinai. And God gives commands to Moses. Moses, I want you to come up to the mountain. So as you read Exodus, you see Moses going up and down, up and down, up and down on this mountain. The people are down below waiting for Moses because Moses is the mediator of the covenant. He's the deliverer. He's the prophet. He's bringing messages from God to the people. He's bringing words from the people to God. Double function, prophet, priest, deliverer, shepherd, mediator, so then he goes up on the mountain, gets instruction from God. Then he gets these famous Ten Commandments. And God lays it out. And God tells this to Moses. Starting at verse 1, God said all of these words. He said it to Moses. And then Moses would communicate this to the people down below. Here is the true God. You've spent all this time in Egypt. You were twisted. In, I mean, they tried to brainwash you in terms of your thinking and reprogram you for 400 years as you were slaves in Egypt with all these false gods and polytheism and immorality trying to snuff out the truth of the true God, Yahweh. So God is very clear, starts at ground zero, makes it clear, assumes nothing. Here's who I am. Here's how you worship me. Here's things you should never do when approaching me. That's the Ten Commandments. They are binding. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. That's number commandment number two, Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath 
or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God. I'm the only God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. If you do not worship me properly, it may be a manifestation of the fact that you hate me. This is strong language. God got angry with Moses. If you don't worship me the right way, you must hate me. And I must punish you. Well, he does all this, and then the pe- and then God comes down in smoke and fire, and the people are trembling, and the people all shout out in chapter 19 and in chapter 20, uh, and the people say to Moses, all these things that you have commanded, we will do. And you know what? Moses went back up the hill and told God. I told them all this stuff, Lord, and they said they are committed. They will obey. They will do the Ten Commandments and everything else that you said. They've made a vow. And a commitment. Oh, okay. Let's remember that. Then Exodus 24. Look at that. Uh, God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord at the mountain, you, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel. So they start going up the mountain, then God says, Stop. Moses, you're allowed to keep coming. Everybody else, stay there. And then two times from the vantage point that they had, Moses, Aaron, Aaron was Moses' older brother. Nadab and Abihu were Moses' two nephews. It's family, family affair going here. And then the 70 elders, these are 70 chosen men. They all have the privilege of going up the mountain. And here's an amazing thing. God unveils his glory, and it says in verse 10, they saw the God of Israel. They had a vision of God. It's emphatic because in verse 11 it says the same thing. They saw God. They saw the glory of God. An unveiling of God. God's sitting pictured on a throne in a sea of glass. This is just these 70 men, Moses, Nadab. Life-changing. Can you imagine? Being in slavery in Egypt, and then you have this privilege to see the creator of the universe manifest his glory up on his holy hill. You would think that that would change Aaron and Nadab and Abihu who had that privilege. Absolutely life-changing. Well, then it goes on. God gives... 613 commands. That's a lot. That's why Moses keeps writing it down, and Moses wrote it down, and Moses wrote it down, and God told Moses, write it down. Then now get to chat, now flip to 32. 32, Exodus 32, verse 1. Some time has gone by. Moses keeps going up and down this uh, mountain. The people have met around the foot of the mountain. They've made vows to God. We will obey. We have heard. We've heard these commandments. We heard the Ten Commandments. We heard what you said. We know that you are the only true God. We cannot compromise in the way we worship you. It was very precise. It was very specific. There are no graven images. You are Yahweh. You delivered us through those 10 miraculous signs of delivery that he did before Pharaoh to get them out of Egypt. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They saw the Red Sea opened and close on Pharaoh's army. They've seen and experienced all of this. Some of the greatest Miracles in the history of the world. And then they get this revelation about how to worship God. And they said, well, we will obey. Now, Moses is up on the hill again, or the mountain. Verse 1 of Exodus 32. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Man, he has been up there a long time. Is he ever going to come down? Hey, is he ever going to come down? Hey, pass it on. Hey, is he ever going to come down? what they're doing. That's their attitude. Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Get this. The people assembled around Aaron. I don't know how many people, but there was a lot of them. 
assembled around Aaron. Who's Aaron? Aaron is Moses' older brother. Who's Aaron? Aaron just got to see a vision of God up on the Mount Sinai. Who's Aaron? He's set apart to be the first high priest of the nation of Israel. That's who Aaron is. People assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God. Come, make us an Elohim. That's the Hebrew word. It's the same word in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Come, make us an Elohim who will go before us. As for this Moses guy, what do you mean this Moses guy? You mean the Moses that just set you free from slavery? Are you kidding me? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, you would think Aaron would say, hey, that's my brother you're talking about. He didn't say that. Verse 2, Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. It's like he didn't even put up an argument. Wow. It's easy to pick on Aaron here, but wow. The first high priest. God just said, don't worship idols and don't make any kind of idol after my image. And here's Aaron going to take a collection. Verse 3. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And Aaron took this from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. He turned it into an idol. And this is exactly what God said, don't do. Do not make idols and don't worship idols because I am the true God. And the true God doesn't have a body, and he, God has no competitors. And here Aaron does the very thing that they promised. Remember when they said, we shall do and obey in Exodus 19? Kind of like the fickle mob that cried for Jesus' blood. Remember that before Pilate? Crucify him! Crucify him! We have no king but Caesar! Days before, they're shouting for Jesus. Hosanna in the highest, son of David. Be our savior! The fickle mob. That's what they are. Then look what Aaron says, very specifically. Aaron makes this, he spearheads the whole thing in this sin, violating true worship. Behold, this is your God! This is your Elohim. That's the word he used. He gets more specific, which is startling. This is your God, Elohim, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This is not a false God in Aaron's mind. This is the true God. This is what he just did. This is the God that delivered you. He goes by Elohim, and more specifically, verse 5. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made, a, Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. There it is. That is God's specific personal name that he gave to Moses in the burning bush. This is completely unexcusable. Aaron was not confused about who the true God is. So the next day, they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They're having a celebration, worshiping the false god. Now, ironically, uh, Moses is up on the mountain and God's rehearsing his Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not have any other gods. Thou shalt not have any idols. And meanwhile, they're down there making idols. You can't get any more ironic than that. 
How pathetic. Well, God knows everything. He knew about it. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses and said, Go down at once. Go down immediately for your, your people. Whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And then Yahweh said to Moses, get this, verse 9, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, Moses, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. I'm going to start all over. I'm going to evaporate these people to dust. All two million of them. That's how angry God was at false worship. You can't do things your way. You can't change what God has laid out. It makes God angry. That's the point. And then Moses in his grace and mercy, he intercedes and pleads with God, God, be merciful. God's merciful. And he forgave him and said, okay, I'll give him another chance. Then you read the rest of the Old Testament and God gives him a zillion chances. Okay, go to 2 Samuel. I don't have time to do Leviticus 10. I'll just tell you about Leviticus 10, 1 through 7. Uh, Moses is still getting instructions from God and God says, okay, now uh, I gave you instructions on the tabernacle and how to build that and how to do sacrifices, and now we need to ordain a priesthood. So bring Aaron here, and Moses anoints Aaron, and then God says, okay, now bring Nadab and Abihu and anoint them and prepare them for their big day, their big day, big graduation day, where they get to serve as priests on day one, the day of the feast day in Leviticus 8 and 9. And so God prepares, it's like their ordination. They finished seminary, and now they are literally being ordained in front of the entire congregation of Israel in chapters 8 and 9 of Leviticus. And it, he's, God's having them jump through all these hoops, and it says, and they did as the Lord commanded. And they did as the Lord commanded. Thirteen times! And they did as the Lord commanded. Thirteen times! Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And then you get to chapter 10, and here they are finally, they're done with ordination, they get out in front of the assembly, and they're about to perform their first duty in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1 and following says that Nadab and Abihu, the sons who are now priests, the sons of Aaron, the nephews of Moses, it says they offered strange fire before the Lord. Another translation says they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. We know it is unauthorized because God just spent all of his time delineating what kind of offering and fire you're supposed to offer. The coals that you get for the fire are supposed to come from a specific place. You're supposed to do it at a specific time of the day. And then the two sons, this would be like on graduation, and you're about to get your diploma, and you do something really stupid that it warrants the death penalty on the spot. And they don't want it for a trial. It's just fire comes down from heaven and consumes you on the stage before you shake the chancellor's hand. Because that's what happened. It's devastating. Nadab and Abihu were consumed, killed, by God in his anger, on the first day of their service, in front of everybody. And then God immediately said, you know what, Aaron? You are not allowed to cry or mourn. And the two younger sons, they're not allowed to cry or mourn. And somebody needs, and the nephews, or the cousins, they need to drag those bodies out of here, out of the camp. Now, everybody else could cry and mourn, but the immediate family was not allowed to cry or mourn. They were supposed to be more concerned about how they violated the holiness of God. God's priorities. God comes first. That's what Jesus said in Matthew. God comes before your family relationships. Uh, look at Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 
before Kings, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David is now king. David's been on the run for many years. David uh, is a rising power. He's amassed an army. He's conquered his foes. He's battling the Philistines. He's overcoming some of the hostility of his fellow Jews. He secures power in Jerusalem. He maximizes that power, and finally he is anointed as king over all of that area. And he has a mass following. He's a mighty warrior. People are now finally going to give him allegiance. But it's been a hard road. The one thing that happened during this time is that the Ark of the Covenant was taken away. It was stolen by the Philistines. They had it for seven months. The Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant? That's where the presence of God is. Back in Exodus 25, don't go there, but while God's giving all these instructions about how to properly worship Him, God gave very specific details about how to build the Ark of the Covenant, how big it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be overlaid with gold. It was supposed to have a lid. It was supposed to have rings, metal rings on the sides by which two long poles would go on the rings, and the Ark, the holy, sacred Ark, that no Levite was allowed to touch the outside of the Ark, let alone if you looked inside the ark, you would die instantly. Why? Because that was the presence of God inside the ark. And only specific kinds of Levites were allowed to carry the ark whenever they moved, and they had to do it very specifically as God had outlined. And they weren't allowed to touch that box, that ark, that holy. They had to carry these, they had these two poles, and they would put them on their shoulders, and they would walk the ark only in obedience to where God wanted to be placed. Well, the Philistines stole the ark. God in his grace didn't slaughter or kill uh, the Philistines who took it. He allowed them to have it for a while. And now David wants to recover the ark. He knows it doesn't belong to the Philistines. They're, they're pagans. That's the presence of God. It belongs with God's people, and it belongs right here in Jerusalem, the new capital of Israel. God's going to honor that. God wants the ark to be there. He wants his presence, to be, his presence to be in Jerusalem. And so that's the context here. So David is trying to secure the ark of God from the Philistines. It's been away for a long time. So now King David, again, gathered all the chosen men of Israel, about 30,000 men. These were probably 30,000 soldiers because he has been in battle after battle after battle with the Philistines. And they could be around any rock, any bush, any time. And so he has, to, he has to travel nine miles from Jerusalem to go secure the ark. So he's got a standing army with him to protect him. They're probably building a, a barrier, a barricade, a wall over the course of that nine miles to protect him. In securing the ark. That's what the 30,000 are for. By the way, in Numbers 4 and 15 and 20, God reminds the priests, you know what? If you touch the ark the wrong way, you're dead. If you don't do what I tell you to do, you're dead. He says it twice. Obey and do exactly what I say, or you're dead. You don't do what I tell you to do and do something else, you're dead. Got that, high priest? Got that, Levite? God's serious about how we worship him. So David arose and went with all the people who were with him. He rose and left Jerusalem to a city nearby about nine miles called Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, where God's presence literally was residing, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And, they, and get this. So David knows the law. He knows the Mosaic law. He has the Mosaic law in his possession. He's an educated man. He's an intelligent man. He knows what it says. He should have remembered this. He knew Exodus 25. He knew Numbers 4. He knew who the priests were and the appropriate ones of who was to carry it and how the ark was to be carried. And he, he just foregoes and bypasses all of it. Doesn't do any of it. 
Utter disregard for what God expects in worship. This is the heart of worship. This was the central feature of worship was the ark because it was the presence of God. You don't compromise in this area. Well, David did. They, that's these appointed Levites by David. They placed the ark on a new cart. What does that mean? They picked up the ark and put it on some unauthorized cart. That is not how you carry the ark, according to Exodus 25. David, you should have known this. They put it on a new cart that they might bring the ark from the house of Abinadab, where it was, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, two guys, Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. could very well be that they were from the proper family in order to do this. They're just doing it the wrong way. Uzzah, don't ever name one of your children Uzzah, and you'll know why. Verse 4, so they brought the ark on this unauthorized cart with the permission of the king of Israel, David. After all, they're just obeying his command. What do you disregard the command of the king? The monarch, David, who in chapter 5, God appointed his king and said, verse 1, 2, you shall shepherd my people, David. You will be ruler over all. Well, they're just doing what they're told. Verse 4, so they brought Uzzah and Ahio. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead in front of the ark, paving the way. Meanwhile, verse 5, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, lyre, harp, tambourine, castanets, cymbals, all kinds of music, celebration. Here comes the ark. Here comes the ark. The presence of God. The presence of God. Verse 6, but when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, that means threshing floor where there are some stones sticking up out of the ground that they didn't see, bumped into it. Bumped into it. Threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen nearly upset. It's going along, hits a rock, and all of a sudden the holy ark of God is about to fall, crashing to the ground. The presence of God crashing to the ground. Uzzah panics. That's, that's the holiness of God. So what does he do? He goes to grab it and keep it from falling, and he touches the ark. You think, yay, yip, yip, hooray for Uzzah. He saved God. That was not God's attitude. Uzzah reached toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. Verse 7, And the anger of Yahweh burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence on the spot. I remember when I was 19 years old, and I'd never read the Bible, and I read this passage. I can remember the day I read this passage for the first time. It took my breath away. And my thought was, wow, this doesn't seem right. Wow, this doesn't seem fair. Wow, this isn't very nice. Wrong perspective. Human thinking. Utter indifference to the holiness and the reverence of God. I had a wrong view of who God was, and I had a wrong view of worship. A wrong view of priorities. The more mature you are spiritually, the more your thinking will resonate with how God views things, even in situations like this. There's no injustice with God. 
This was perfectly warranted. This was the right thing. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence on the spot, and he died right there publicly, end of the party. Right by the ark of God. What was David's reaction? David's leading this whole thing. David became angry. David got angry instantly. David was like, I was like David. Short-sighted, human thinking, self-centered thinking. How dare you, God? He had good intentions. He was trying to help you out. God doesn't need help with how we worship him. So David's first, David is all over the map emotionally. And very quickly, he starts out with anger. And he's angry at God. That's dangerous. Safest place in the world to be is under the umbrella of the obedience to God. The most dangerous place in the world to be, I think, is angry at God. David became angry because of Yahweh's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah as a result. Well, his anger changed real quick, verse 9, and appropriately so. So David was afraid of Yahweh that day. Now that's an appropriate response. God can snuff you out. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David starts to sober up. I'm not worthy. I am not worthy. David got over it real quick. He loved God. He knew God. He had an emotional reaction. Shallow emotional reaction. Didn't last long. Got angry first. Then he realized, wow, you know what? God is holy. God is the creator. God laid this out in the Mosaic law. I'm the king. I am responsible. I know this. He is afraid. He goes from anger to fear to verse 10 to lacking confidence. David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Then he gets word from a a messenger, that God is ready to move the ark. And then in verse 12 at the end, it says, David had great gladness. Look at how he's all over the map emotionally, from anger to fear to apprehension to now sheer joy. And God put him in a place now to worship God the right way, to carry the ark the right way. And it was a, a beautiful celebration as they appropriately for nine miles, or wherever they were at that point, taking it the way the rest of the city, and they sanction and ordain, and God blesses Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel from that point on. Worship God the right way. Let's close with this. John chapter 2. True worship. Nothing changes with Jesus. Nothing changes in the, in the New Testament. Jesus complied with the Old Testament. He welcomed the Mosaic law. He obeyed the Mosaic law. He fulfilled the Mosaic law. He was circumcised the eighth day. He abided by the Mosaic law. He went to temple. He probably went to synagogues, not in the Mosaic law, but we know he was familiar with the synagogue. He obeyed his parents, respected his parents. He knew much when he was 12 years old as he's interacting with the rabbis and the teachers in the temple regarding the Mosaic Law. For 30 years, Jesus did nothing. He was silent. We know nothing about him. He did no teaching. He did no preaching. He did no miracles. He made no scene. He was unknown. People didn't really know him, who he was in terms of an influence in the local area as living there up in Nazareth. Then he gets baptized and begins his ministry and God now sanctions him to be the Messiah and to speak forth rightly. And probably four years, maybe. We don't know. But the way it is, they were prostituting the temple for quite a while. They had established a routine of two gross violations in the outer court of the temple at feast days. And that was 
selling animals for gross profit to be sacrificed to God in the temple courtyard. An egregious violation of the holiness of God. Not worshiping in spirit. Wrong heart. It was all about greed and money and profit. Not only that, they had money changers. To pay your temple tax, you had to have the right kind of coinage. So it was an exchange of currency. And they're doing that for a gross, disgusting profit as well. And they're doing it right there in the courtyard, right in front of the temple, where that was a house of prayer and a house of worship, a sacred place where you meet a holy God. It's supposed to be totally separated. I believe these people were there before this incident in John chapter 2. I don't know how long. I mean, it could have been already an already established practice that where can you imagine Jesus had to go to the temple all the time and see that and put up with it. And, and the father hadn't sanctioned him yet to speak up and say anything the way he does here. For all those years, Jesus had to sit in the synagogue and listen to some human teacher botch it year after year. How frustrating is that? Well, finally, Jesus gets to speak up because he's been unleashed by the father with his baptism for his public ministry. Verse 13 of John chapter 2, the Passover of the Jews was, a, was near, so everybody, all Jews from around the world came and congregated in Passover. The city was filled with maybe close to millions of people, just impacted. Passover of the Jews was near, the, then Jesus went up to Jerusalem from his hometown of Nazareth. He found, in the, so he gets to the temple, he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. So that's two specific different prostitutions of true worship in the temple. And it's amazing. Apparently this was accepted by everybody. Little by little, subtly it creeps in. Somebody at some point came up with the, the bright idea, hey, I got a convenient way to enhance worship and make it easier so that you don't have to travel all the way from Crete with your cow on a ship. Why don't you just come here and buy one? Save the shipping fee, and then just pay me when you get here. You don't have to drag it all the way from uh, Bethany up the road. Hey, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll bring it to Jerusalem for your convenience. Better yet, you know what, I'll stick it in the temple for you. Just a small fee. That's what they were doing. So somebody came up with that brilliant idea, and people are buying into this. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Convenience, convenience. We like convenience, don't we? As humans, we even like convenience in our worship. How can you make church more convenient for me? We all struggle with that. That's what this was all about. And then the guys spearheading it are all about money, lust for filthy lucre. Jesus is now sanctioned by the Father to speak forthrightly. He's the Lord of the temple. It's his Father's house. Verse 15. He got angry, and that's what prompted him to do verse 15. He made a scourge of cords. He made a whip. You know what he did with the whip? He used it. Imagine that, the violence that Jesus was manifesting. It was a public spectacle. There couldn't have been a larger crowd. It was Passover. Oh, that's embarrassing. Oh, he's getting upset. Oh, I can see the veins in his forehead. Oh, he's red. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple. Wow, I would love to have seen that with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins. He poured them out, turned them over, upside down. Didn't say, oh, by the way, here's your, here's your oh, there's another nickel. 
There you go. Poured him out. Probably more graphic than that. He's probably throwing stuff all over the place. Yeah, overturn their tables. Overturn their tables. To those who are selling the doves. And then he's, he's not softly saying, he's probably yelling at the top of his lungs so he can be heard, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business, of compromise, of worldliness. This is a house of worship. This is his main point. That's my main point today. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. Zeal for preserving perfect worship, holy worship, biblical worship as God has delineated is going to get somebody in trouble. And that was the Messiah. And it did. This was the cause for his execution on the cross. Because he cleaned the, cleansed the temple the second time, three years later, the last week of his life. And that's what they pinned on him in order to execute him. He violated the temple of God. The Jews then said to Jesus, what sign do you show us as to your authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews were baffled, and they said, it took 46 years for Herod to rebuild this temple. 46 years. Who do you think you are? And you're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus was saying, this temple, this building, this physical building... This is just a facade. This is a picture. This is a type of the greatest temple. That's me. Which is the very presence of Almighty God. This temple. Kill me and in three days I'll raise myself from the dead. That's what he said. And he did. True worship. So we need to do the same, saints. We cannot compromise on our worship when we have the beckoning words and call of the world calling us to compromise. In a crisis, that's what happens. A couple things happen. In a crisis, we've seen it where those who are weak in the Christian world, they compromise. And we've seen that compromise. Also what happens is they cater to voices and begin to adjust biblical worship for pseudo-worship, false worship. Now, I told you last week how they're normalizing things that are new today that, we, that were unthinkable 13 months ago for us. Under what conditions would you just decide, you know, I'm not going to go be with God's people anymore at church. Well, two years ago, you would have thought, well, I can't think of any circumstances under which that would happen. Now we justify it and make all kinds of excuses. It's been 13 months. We're going to go another 13 months, another five years. Here's a challenge, and, and it just takes away from true worship. Things that God requires and demands. God commands his people to sing. We need to continue to sing to him. It's not an option. We need to go out and evangelize. We can't be inhibited by what the world's. Oh, you can't go there. You can't go on that porch. You can't go in that park. It's COVID. You've got to stop evangelizing. No, I don't. It's commanded by God. So we continue singing. We continue to evangelize. Well, you can't have baptisms. You know, COVID, it gets in the water. There are some churches that actually believe that. No baptisms during COVID. No, no, we're baptizing. Jesus said so. It's the Great Commission. That's true worship. We don't compromise. We don't neglect what God told us to do. He hates that. Well, don't, don't congregate for communion. You can't have communion. You know, there are churches that have not had communion in 13 months. When Jesus said you need to have communion often, that's the word used, often, regularly, the disciples who laid the model for us in Acts chapter 2 had it daily and weekly. That's a visual, tangible reminder of what Christ did for us. Well, you can do it individually. You just can't 
get together and do communion. Oh, but the word communion means to get together. It's what the word means, to commune, to congregate. So God commanded this. We're obligated to do it. And finally, we're being told, don't gather for worship. That's probably the most important one. God says, you need to gather your body. You need to get together. You need to gather. You need to meet. They did it in the Old Testament for all their feast days and time and time again. And in the synagogue, and Jesus for the Last Supper. Can you imagine if Jesus was alive? And Jesus says, okay, uh, prepare my Last Supper. Go get that donkey, and you'll find an upper room. And the 13 of us will meet there at this time. Well, wait a minute. The governor said we can only have nine people. Do you think Jesus would say, oh, okay. Rock, paper, scissors. Okay, uh, Peter, Peter, you're out. No. To celebrate the Passover was mandated by God in Exodus 12. You will meet, and you will meet together, and you will meet together as a family. And if there are other smaller families who can't afford all the accommodations and accoutrements, then you let them join you. You have a huge crowd. The church started with 120 people in one room. In Acts chapter 1. God's people need to be together. Hebrews 10 makes it clear. And if you neglect that, the gathering of the saints, that is sin. It is disobedience. Well, that's coming on strong. I'm just telling you what the Bible verse says. My heart breaks for the prospect of dear saints and believers who theoretically could spend the rest, last three or four years of their life cooped up in their, their apartment all by themselves. And the Lord Jesus asked him, what did you do with the last four years of your life? Oh, I was, I was hunkered down in an apartment or a house by myself. Why? You're part of the body. When you are gone, when you're missing, we all hurt. When you suffer, we all suffer. So I'm saying this to balance, I think, the deluge of the other side that we keep hearing from the foremost influential evangelical leaders in the world. Let's go to our great God in prayer regarding these things. Father, we thank you for our time together. Again, seeking your word, because that's the only source we have, God, in Scripture and in the Bible to know what you think about anything. And you have revealed your thoughts very clearly. We thank you. We thank you again for the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, who enlightens our understanding on these matters. Thank you for the picture and the portrait laid out so clearly that from beginning to end, from Genesis really to Revelation, your standards of worship haven't changed. You are always and forevermore the holy God, separate from your creation. You disdain and utterly despise and hate sin and must punish it. We thank you that you've provided the sacrifice for that in the Lord Jesus Christ, who absorbed the penalty for our sin. And for these reminders that we need to approach you only in a way that you have laid out. We need to refrain from doing our own things that violate your standards of how to properly worship you. God, we need your help. We need, to, we need your help with discernment in the world to sort that out, what's acceptable and what is not. Because we want to please you in our worship, our desire, and with the help of your Holy Spirit, we will fulfill that mandate that Jesus so clearly laid out that the Father is seeking worshipers and those who will worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.